It's always interesting if you have a friend who works at someplace like the Wolf Trap, or maybe at a nice hotel like the Ritz-Carlton, or maybe at the Verizon Center. Not just because they can get you free tickets or a free room, but because they may be able to tell you things about the celebrities that they get to meet. And one of the things that you'll frequently hear about such celebrities is, so-and-so was such a beep. And you realize that that person's carefully crafted public image is an illusion. If you go back to the Reformation era in the 16th century, the early Protestant reformers had jettisoned many of the teachings of the church. But one theological idea that they very much retained was the idea that mankind is darkened by original sin. And this makes sense. G.K. Chesterton said that original sin is the one article of faith provable by simple observation. Ask the parent of any two-year-old child. Of course, these heresies started by Martin Luther and John Calvin overemphasized the idea of original sin. And that's the case with all heresies. They always overemphasize one truth at the expense of the truth. They emphasized original sin so much that they called into question whether a person could do anything good in the eyes of the Lord. They rejected the teaching of the church that because of divine grace, not outside of it, human beings could obtain merit before God. And they started the meme that you might still hear from some Protestant fundamentalists, that Catholics are arrogantly believing that we are saving ourselves by doing good works. But the pendulum swung the other way. Because once Protestantism had separated faith from the authority of the church, you started to see the erosion of faith altogether, as the Enlightenment encouraged the growth of deism and atheism. And with that loss of faith came the loss of the sense that mankind was really tainted by original sin. At a time when science and technology were unlocking more and more of the secrets of the physical world, it seemed pedantic to insist that the minds of men were somehow darkened by the sin of Adam and Eve. Instead, thinkers like Rousseau believed that man was born good, but that he was corrupted by society. And the supreme irony of that insight that belief that we are corrupted by society but are born good is that it only causes us so much more grief when we do something bad as we inevitably do. And it eventually leads to indifference to the idea of sin itself. A far more social and humane understanding and starting point is to acknowledge that we are all sinners, not just in fact, not just in the sins that we have actually committed, but in the principle of being a sinner on account of our descent from Adam and Eve. Having lost that sense that we are all sinners, it becomes especially easy to justify whatever we do that is bad by believing that we are doing some other greater good. And this temptation especially afflicts those who are talented, people like rock stars and athletes and politicians because they believe that they do such important things, and of course, everyone around them tells them the same thing. 
you're doing something great. And so your little problems or your little arrogance or pride doesn't matter. It's often been said that the great sinners and the great saints are made from the same stuff. They are both the result of souls endowed with a capacity for greatness. Most of the rest of us, truth be told, are destined for far more mundane faults or accomplishments. But the genius of Christianity is to see that the root of both the great sins and the small sins is the sin of pride, something that to our modern society often seems like a petty and irrelevant concern. How often do we see in the media a Catholic who has perhaps been told that because of their obstinate lifestyle or their public advocacy of ideas contrary to the church, that they are now out of communion? And what do they say? How dare the church? I'm a good Catholic. I do this good work and this and this and this. How dare they condemn me? Well, I imagine whatever sin it was that got them into that situation with the church is much smaller than the sin expressed by what they just said. But there's no point in just picking on them because we all do the same things in our own ways, perhaps just less dramatically. We're all good at justifying our own sins. We have to remember that the first sin, even before the downfall in Genesis, was the fall of Lucifer one of the mightiest of the angels. As an angel, a pure spirit, Lucifer doesn't have a bodily nature. He doesn't have that temptation to commit many of the the sins that haunt our mortal bodies, things like greed and lust and sloth and gluttony. But he does have an intellect. And so the one sin that he could commit, that he and the other fallen angels could commit, was one of pride, non-servium, I will not serve. Sometimes critics of the Catholic Church will say that at various times in her history, the church or the pope or the bishops didn't speak out enough against certain horrible things that were happening in the world. Most of the time, that's just slander and historical revisionism. But if there's any truth to it at all, it stems from the fact that The church sees her mission as saving souls, and most souls are involved in sins that are far more private and personal rather than public and political. And so that's where the church concentrates her energy. And chief amongst those personal and private sins is the simple sense of pride. Because ultimately, the worst sins are simply the result of small accumulations of pride. It takes a big ego to commit a big sin. And the church is focused on the root rather than the branch. Back in the early part of the last century, a newspaper editor in England put out a call to all of the leading intellectuals in Great Britain to submit an essay on what was then the greatest problem facing the world. And so the usual torrent of experts weighed in with their pet theories. But our hero, G.K. Chesterton, again, sent in his one-line entry, and it went, Dear Sir, I am, signed, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, Foremost Sinner. Our faith doesn't accept the trade-off that accomplishing some grand project in the world 
is a pass against mistreating others outside the public eye. C.S. Lewis explained one of the greatest tricks of the devil. The great thing is to direct man's malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he does not know. The malice then becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. There's often a frustration, a frustration among some Catholics and other Christians as to why the church and other groups that are acting in furtherance of Christianity are often not more aggressive in the way they approach public battles that are raging about in our world today. There's no one answer to that question, and there are different legitimate opinions about different approaches. But some of the answer lies in the very fact that the church is not going to approach these questions the way a political action committee does, or an activist group with their slash and burn tactics. Because for the church, it's not about winning political battles, it's about saving souls. And the root of the ability to save souls is charity. And the gift of that is humility. We can never let that be extinguished, no matter how great the external goal. We know this because we have the model of Christ our Savior. See your king come to you. A just savior he is, meek and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. If it was his way, it must be our way as well. Sometimes those who have the good things in life, a stable family, friends, material possessions, education, a good career, these people struggle most with the problem of humility because they have the greatest sense of self-sufficiency and they struggle the most with the prideful sense that they are in control of their own destiny. And that may be the reason why Christ tells us to search out the lost and the poor and the sick and the aged and the outcast. Not just to serve them, but because, as Christ said, for although the Father has hidden these things from the wise and the learned, he has revealed them to little ones. Because often these people that are outside of the margins of society often cannot do for themselves, and so they have come to acknowledge their humble reliance on the Lord for all that they have. We learn in serving these least among us the lesson in humility that we so often miss in our own lives. The Mass, too, is meant to be a great school of humility. It is the place where we acknowledge our brokenness before the world, before our neighbors, and before God. It reminds us of the parts of ourselves we are often too tempted to deny, our faults and failings, our poverty and our illness, not physically, but spiritually. Its very structure should renounce our pride. In saying the same formulas week after week, in hearing the same readings year after year, as though we are too dull to learn them once for all, in listening to the priest drone on and on and on, in humbly submitting ourselves to the God of the universe cloaked in an ordinary piece of bread. It can be jarring to someone not familiar with it to say things like, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. 
But when we enter into the Mass as we are supposed to, we learn the true meaning of Christ's words, that humility is not a burden, but a liberation. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light.